2: With travel bans and tightening borders to its south, Canada has become renowned for welcoming refugees. Now that tens of thousands have come, there's much talk about so called asylum shopping. With an election coming up, the government is reconsidering just how open to be. And how many hours have you put in recently just so that you're seen to be at work? Whatever the number, it's too many. We discuss presenteeism and why it's no good for you or your employer. But first... The European Commission warned yesterday that it might launch legal action against Italy, which has violated rules about its huge public debt and its plans to run too large a deficit, both this year and next. EU member states will now decide whether what's called an excessive deficit procedure should be launched against Italy. In theory, the country could face billions of euros in fines. In Italy, the right wing populist Matteo Salvini, one leader in a coalition government, has responded angrily to the Commission. He told a crowd of supporters that Italy does not want to ask Europe for Spanish, German, and French money, but rather for dignity and the right to work.
3: The reason why Italy's finances have been in the spotlight is because they have a very large public debt burden, second only to Greece in Europe, um, of about 130% of GDP.
2: Rachana Shanbog is The Economist's Europe economics correspondent. She's been reporting from Italy this week.
3: And. Europe's fiscal rules require that that debt burden comes down at a prescribed pace. However, in 2018, it actually went up for the first time in four years. And this is what the Commission isn't very happy about. When we look at the Italian economy, we are seeing the damage recent policy choices are doing. Uh, Today, Italy pays in debt servicing as much as for the entire education system. In 2018, Italy's debt represented an average burden of uh, uh, 38,400 uh, euros per inhabitant. And in addition, the average debt servicing cost per person was around uh, 1,000 euros.
2: So what's the response been in Italy then? Have you? What are your officials there saying?
3: I've spoken to a lot of economists from think tanks and banks, and um, from their point of view, the commission does have a good argument to make, that the government should be thinking about reining in the public finances. They're worried about um, the trajectory that the debt is on. The finance ministry, however, doesn't agree. It disagrees with the commission's analysis. It sees the reason for the overshoot in the debt as being worst performing economy and also thinks that, in fact, the deficit this year will be a bit smaller than projected. So from Giovanni Tria, the finance minister's point of view, the commission is just misguided in in, um, making this judgment now.
2: Well, what's the finance minister saying to the commission? How is he trying to calm their concerns?
3: Italy's finance ministry says we'll um, make sure that the deficit doesn't exceed 3%, either by introducing increases in vat rates uh, value added taxes or by finding the money from somewhere else that means that the deficit doesn't exceed 3% and and brussels just isn't convinced by that. They know that other politicians in the government have said that they don't want to bring in the VAT rises because they're unpopular. They also know that Matteo Salvini, who's the leader of one of the ruling parties in Italy's coalition, has been making noises about rewriting Europe's fiscal rules rather than following them. And I think that's partly why they've decided to go ahead and say that, you know, Italy's public finances warrant some action.
2: There's this, this sense that what's going on in Italy presents some some future risks, but it, it's, the, it's the direction of travel that's troubling. I mean, how close is Italy to, to a real crisis?
3: I think there's still plenty of strengths that, that Italy can, can rely on, so a crisis isn't around the corner just yet. Two-thirds of its debt is held domestically, a lot of its, the, the average maturity of its debt is about seven years. So what that means is it takes quite a long time for um, rises in government interest rates to start feeding through into interest expenditure and into the public finances. So that gives Italy some time. And if we think back to last year when, when, when Roman Brussels were in confrontation over the budget, the government did back down once borrowing costs started to rise, you know, they don't want to be responsible for triggering some kind of crisis. And perhaps a lot of of people that I've spoken to here hope that another compromise will be reached again. And perhaps it's the markets rather than Brussels that will enforce that discipline.
2: Italy isn't the first country to be put in the naughty corner for spending too much.
4: The European Commission has threatened to discipline countries for budget infractions before. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. Uh, In 2016, most recently, they were on the verge of doing something about the fact that Spain and Portugal had violated their budget commitments, but in the end they backed off and no fines
2: were imposed. Sort of following on from that, what's different about the Portugal-Spain situation from this one?
4: Portugal and Spain were both seen to be moving towards taking the kinds of steps that the European Commission would want them to take – uh, and both countries had a convincing case to make that their economies were going to improve in the long run, which proves to be correct. Portugal's economy has done extremely well over the last couple of years in particular. Um, in Italy's case, they have been moving in the opposite direction from what the European Commission wants. Uh, they have been backtracking on commitments to cut their budget deficit and to try and address their sky-high debt, and their projections for their future GDP growth have been remarkably rosy uh, and have not panned out. They were expecting 1.5% growth. That was what they based their budget deficit estimates on. It looks like growth in 2019 is going to come in at 0.2%. And that's the source of a lot of the problems that they're
2: seeing at the moment. So how is this warning from the European Commission playing politically in Italy and, and among the people who might feel hard done by here? Brussels is a very good enemy for an Italian
4: politician to have, and Matteo Salvini, the leader of the Northern League party and deputy prime minister, has been happily crusading against Brussels' possible efforts to discipline Italy. Um, The Northern League and its coalition partners, the the Five Star Movement, entered government with the Five Star Movement promising lots more spending and the Northern League promising lower taxes, and that obviously has gotten them to a situation where the deficit keeps on widening. one of the political conflicts that's coming up is that the Prime Minister Giuseppe Conti, is a kind of a technocratic figure who was brought in specifically in order to reassure Brussels and the markets that this government would not be too crazy. He is uncomfortable with the current position and he is threatening to step down if uh, if it isn't resolved in a reasonable way. He thinks it's going too crazy yes, um, uh, I don't know if he said it in so many words, but it's not uh, he's not comfortable with where, with where the, uh, with where the budget is heading.
2: Matt, thanks very much for your time. You're welcome.
1: Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation.
2: Canada, under Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, has been famously open-armed.
5: We define a Canadian not by a skin colour or a language or a religion or a background, but by a shared set of values, aspirations, hopes and dreams.
2: In 2015, he welcomed a plane load of Syrian refugees arriving at Toronto's Pearson Airport.
5: How you will receive these people tonight? will be something they will remember for the rest of their lives, but also, I know, something that you will remember for the rest of your lives.
2: In response to President Donald Trump's travel ban in 2017, he tweeted support to refugees, saying that diversity is Canada's strength. But with a general election scheduled for October, Mr. Trudeau and his liberal government are re-examining their policies.
6: Well, anyone who's familiar with the U.S. Midwest or the Canadian prairies knows that it's not a place to be in the middle of winter. But Sadu Mohammed decided that he would walk across the border from the U.S. into Canada in the middle of a snowstorm so that he would be able to claim asylum here.
2: Madeleine Joan is our Canada correspondent.
6: And because of the weather, and because he didn't get picked up right away on the other side as well, he lost all of his fingers to frostbite. And when this became public knowledge, he became a bit of a celebrity that he so wanted to get into Canada that he was willing to brave this winter snowstorm and lose his fingers to do it. How would I know? I didn't know I'm gonna lose my fingers. I want somewhere where I can be safe. The reason Mr. Mohammed was claiming asylum is that he is from Ghana, and he's homosexual, and he said he fears that he would be lynched if he was returned to his home country. Mr. Mohammed's back in the news again because he was appearing before a parliamentary committee that's studying changes to Canada's refugee law.
2: And what are the changes that Mr. Mohammed objects to?
6: Well, in particular, what he objects to is change that the Liberal government wants to make where refugees coming into Canada cannot make an asylum claim if they come from any of the countries that Canada considers safe, and that's the US, Britain, Australia, and New Zealand, and they've already made an asylum claim there. And the government's defense of this change is that this will prevent asylum shopping and it will uh, bolster Canadian confidence that refugees coming into Canada are real refugees and they don't have other options. Refugees in general and those coming across the the border from the U.S. have become a big issue in Canada in, in the last couple of years. And that's because there's been a sudden uptick, a big surge, in fact, of people that are walking across the border to claim asylum. In the last couple of years, it's been something like 42,000 people. Now, these are not Americans per se. They're people who have arrived in the U.S. one way or the other. A lot of them are from Haiti or from Latin America or from Africa. And they've been taking advantage of a, a loophole in Canadian law which says that If you approach an official border post and you're coming from the U.S., you actually can be turned back. But if you cross the border anywhere between official border posts and actually set foot on Canadian soil, then you can claim asylum in Canada and have your case heard. And that's how Mr. Mohammed and these other 42,000 people walked across the border and got into the refugee claim system.
2: And so is it that some of these many people who are arriving feel that they have a better chance of getting in as refugees in Canada than they would have in the U.S. where they're starting off from?
6: Yes, Mr. Mohammed actually had uh, filed a refugee claim in the U.S. He says he was detained for a number of months and then he feared that he was going to be deported, that in fact the U.S. would not consider his case a legitimate one for asylum. And so that's why he decided to take his chance in Canada. This new change to the law means people like him would be turned back as soon as they made an asylum claim just because they came from the U.S.,
2: What's caused Canadian politicians to take this more hardline approach to immigration?
6: Conservatives led by Andrew Scheer have really made this issue about people walking across the border, they made it a big political issue. They're calling it a crisis. It's not a crisis, but they're calling it a crisis. And they're insisting the government do something about it. And the government is starting to worry that this is going to undermine Canadian support, not just for refugees, but for immigration in general. And so this change they're they're proposing right now in the legislation is a tightening up. Canada is a little less welcoming under this. And they're doing it expressly because of all this political pressure. And there's an election coming up.
2: So what about the the Canadian people, themselves fairly well-known for being welcoming?
6: Canadians in general support immigration. It's still the majority that support immigration. And these are people that are, you know, selected to come in for permanent residency. But there are some doubts arising on refugees And there are also doubts along partisan lines about how many what Canadians call visible minorities should be allowed into Canada. There was an interesting poll recently where something like 40% of Canadians said there were too many visible minorities in Canada. But when you looked at that on political lines, it was about 70% Conservatives said that and only 15% of Liberals So there is a bit of a split emerging there. Mr. Trudeau's trying to do something to sort of paper over that gap.
2: You mentioned that the the issue is becoming increasingly politicized and that there's an election coming up. I mean, how do you see this, this playing out?
6: I think the Conservatives are going to be a bit careful during the election campaign about how they phrase their attacks on refugees. I mean, I think they'll still be calling them illegal, calling it a crisis, saying the government should do something about that. But, you know, underneath that, it's a little bit of sort of almost dog whistle politics is they're speaking to some people saying, we're going to get a handle on this and it might be, will be keeping out some of the people you don't like. They're going to have to be quite delicate about it, because after all, you know, Canada is a country of immigrants. I think it's something like one out of every five Canadians is born elsewhere. And in the big cities like Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver, almost half the population, or even more than half, is immigrants or their children. So they're going to have to do a bit of a delicate dance there.
2: Madeline, thank you very much for your time.
6: My pleasure.
2: We've all had those days. you finished all your work, but there's still a half an hour until it's time to go home.
5: Presenteeism is the feeling from workers and from managers that employees must be at the office as many hours as God gives, and that workers should not leave often before their bosses do. Philip Coggan writes The Economist's Bartleby column about work and management. Probably the worst example of uh, presenteeism in recent memory is Theranos, which was the blood testing company which eventually collapsed. The boyfriend of the founder, Elizabeth Holmes, Sonny Balwani, used to wander around the office at 7.30 in the evening to check whether people were still at their desk. And people were often fired for not having the right attitude at Theranos. And the problem there, of course, was that the whole project was flawed from the beginning, so they could have stayed there 24 hours a day and it wouldn't have helped. And this culture spreads around the world. So Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, was recently praising the 996 model, which involves working from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week.
2: I mean, it's not just a matter of being seen to be at your desk. There are, there are ways to sort of convey I'm, I'm around and I'm busy.
5: Now, the oldest trick is to leave a jacket on the back of your chair so it shows you've, you're around somewhere and you just don't happen to be at the desk at the moment. You can wander around with a clipboard and a notebook, particularly past the boss's office, looking purposeful. You can send emails at odd hours. And of course, you can use the delay email function to send it at an hour where it will look very impressive if you're working. So lots of ways of doing it. Of course, While that might be a sensible tactic for you to get on with your boss from the point of view of the economy as a whole or the company as a whole, it's completely pointless. Why are you having to pretend? But people end up resorting to these tactics because they're being judged in such a stupid way.
2: I suppose the point is that beyond a certain number of worked hours, you're not doing that much more work.
5: Yes. All the way back to the First World War, they tried to test this out, and they found that people who stayed at the armaments factory more than 50 hours got progressively less productive. After a while, they were producing less with more hours than they were with shorter hours. And it's again, it's not too surprising because people need to concentrate. You can't concentrate for that long. And the best way of encouraging workers to have them keen and alert. And if you are dog-tired, you're not going to be that way
2: makes plenty of sense. And yet presenteeism is still present. Why?
5: I think we go back to the problem that managers struggle to value their employees. America is particularly stuck on presenteeism. I think lots of Americans don't like to take their full annual holiday. Europe, we're more used to, you know, five weeks holiday a year and 35, 40 hour weeks. Plenty of countries can be extremely productive Uh, with shorter hours. And if you look back over history, the working day has come down from 10, 12 hours to half day on Saturday, and then no Saturday working at all. And we've got more productive and richer over the years. So yes, you're on deadline, you've got to meet a contract or something, you've got to work those extra hours. But to do it all the time, week in, week out, is not helpful.
2: So if everybody knows that it's a bad thing and productivity goes down, how do we escape then this, this notion?
5: Well, some companies have started to realize that it's a bad thing and have adjusted their practices accordingly. Some companies say, turn up when you like, as long as you get the work done. And I have to say, The Economist is a very sensible employer in that respect. And those companies that have used this method seem to be doing perfectly well. In a more creative economy where routine tasks are being automated or sent offshore, then you really want workers to be thinking as clearly and as inventively as possible. And that doesn't mean chaining them to their desks for 12 hours a day. It means allowing them the conditions in which they can be creative. And so the companies that do that will be successful in the long run. So in a sort of Darwinian process, we will weed out the time wasters.
2: Have you ever yourself resorted to any of these tactics?
5: Absolutely. I will cheerfully report to turning up sometimes at the economist meetings for the start. So make sure that one's aren't noticed, but not necessarily be there at the end, because I have, you know, other things to do.
2: Ever sent a delayed email?
5: I haven't done that. I say no, no, no. yeah, no, not That's a brilliant I'm, idea. I, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Philip, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. that's it from us. So on Philip's advice, I'm heading home. Before that, though, let me encourage you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.